0: All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 10, um, we need to give greetings to a couple of people. Uh, one is we have Weiwei with us. And so uh, if you all would make sure to greet him all the way from Taiwan. And so they've made it back safely. And uh, do remember, we'll have an opportunity to serve their family in another week or two with some meals. And so, uh, great opportunity to get to know them. And also, the youngest Baxter brother has uh, survived his uh, initial stint in Marine boot camp. Hoorah, right? I, I said it way weak. And I'm so sorry for that. Uh, my grandfather fought in World War II. I should have done better. Um, but he's here and, uh, and uh, doing well. And so it's good to see him as well. Um, all right, so Hosea chapter 10, we need to, again, remember, uh, while there are still hard words that Hosea the prophet has to say to the North Kingdom, and in some measure, there are hard words to us as well, remember what the goal is. Remember how in chapter 14, God says, I will freely love them, right? And that is such a critical thing for us to remember as we hear some of these things that God has to say and some of the things that we need to be challenged by. Um, and remember how they got here. How did the North Kingdom get into the spiritual condition that they are currently in? Well, um, their, their system of religion failed them from the start because the kings followed the sin of Jeroboam the I. And if you remember Jeroboam the first. He denied the Davidic covenant and he wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, he wanted to essentially prove God wrong. That the Davidic covenant was not something that was needed in order for Israel to flourish, right? And he also set up a place of false worship a false temple, and he had two golden calves for them to worship uh, in in Dan and Bethel, which is now called beth because it's the house of evil instead of the house of God. And so the knowledge of the Lord was absent in the land. That's a critical piece of the puzzle. It's not just that they were engaging in false worship and denying covenant and denying God's promises. It resulted in the coming generations having no idea Who the Lord their God was, who it was that had created them, and to whom they were to submit as the created ones. Now, that's important for us because what impact are we having on the coming generations? What impact are we having upon a world that, for all intents and purposes, is trying its best, if you're paying attention, to do away with any sense that there is a creator? And that that creator has any uh, imposition upon us, that he could make any claim upon us, that he could call us in any way, shape, or form to live a certain way. It's interesting. There's a quote by a 20th century philosopher, and I think I'm saying his name right, Gunther Arnold. He says, it is almost as if we are sorry that we were born instead of made. Now, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is that we are sorry that we are being born and decided by our creator instead of being able to decide what exactly we are. Think about the entire discussion we're having on gender dysphoria, sexuality, and all of these things. Is is a fetus a person? All of these discussions that are essentially saying we know better. We need to be able to decide. We need to be God's. Plural. So this is what's happening in Israel. There's no knowledge of the Lord. There's no righteousness. There's no faithfulness. And yet, how swiftly has judgment come? Well, it hasn't. It's been 200 years, in essence, before judgment will fall in terms of exile. So God, in great graciousness, again and again and again, calls to his people to return to him. Because, as it says in 14, he desires to be able to freely love them. One of the things that Hosea does is it gives a certain pathos to God that we, as Reformed people, we are not comfortable with. Right? That God could in any way, shape, or form have any sort of emotion toward us. That he could, that he could go from, I am going to tear them apart like a lion, and then I will heal them. That is a pathos. Again, it is perfect. It is unlike anything that we understand. But there is a certain groaning that is coming from the Lord here in saying that this is not what I designed you for. This is a groaning that is coming from the creator of the universe who's saying you are commodifying yourselves and destroying yourselves. This is going to cost you, not because you've transgressed me, but because you've transgressed how you were created which is in essence transgressing me. And so we saw last week where he has a harsh word where he says, I'm gonna take the children away from you because I will not have you sacrifice another generation. I won't let you do it. And that sounds harsh to our ears and it should and it should cause us too to groan that that cost would be so high. Yet, I pointed out how we in our culture view children, right? Right? We have some very strange perspectives on children. And so it would not be unwarranted and unjust for him to say the same to us someday. But again, what we have is we have Christ who has received the full stroke of God's wrath, the full weight of our shame and guilt so that we don't have to live in fear of judgment, we have been set free to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We have been sown in righteousness so that we could reap steadfast love and give it away. Our fallow ground has been broken up in Christ so that we could receive the blessing of God's righteous reign upon us. What good news we have as we step into this text, but there's still things for us to learn from it. And so... Um, as we look at God's word, what we're going to see is first the diagnosis and then the cure. And the diagnosis is a false heart, mere words and empty O's. This goes back to something I said last week. And we'll, we'll, we'll kind of press in on this. And I want you to hold this in your mind. And I've got to give Derek Webb credit for saying this again. But he said one of the main problems for us as Christians, which he has now shifted post-Christian. But one of the main reasons that he shifted that way is what he saw was this huge gap between stated belief and practiced belief. That who we say we are is not at all who we are, lived out, right? And we can appeal to grace and cheapen it by saying that gap doesn't matter. Yes, it does. As an ambassador of reconciliation, as an ambassador of this creator God who longs to redeem us, it matters significantly, I can tell you, as a former radical anti-theist. And as a pastor at Current, there are times when my question really is not if God is good, but whether we are changed at all by anything he's done. And so that gap has to be thought through. And what he's going to point out here is you guys are saying one thing with your mouths, you're making these O's, as if I'm some sort of just cosmic candy machine or some sort of tyrant to be appeased. Instead of someone that loves you so dearly, I will sacrifice my son for you. I want to dwell with you for all of eternity. And so, let us look and see the diagnosis as we've seen it. It's just going to be yet another metaphor for what we've heard so far but I pray that it would have an impact upon our hearts. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, Hosea chapter 10, this will be verses 1 through 9. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? They utter mere words and empty oaths. They made covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf at beth Aven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejected oh, rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gebeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not war against the unjust overtake them in Gebeah. So yet again, God is pointing out that you were prosperous and we know that during this season, the North Kingdom was very prosperous. We know that. And we know that that they were doing well. They even gained property. They gained things. But the more that they gained, the more they contributed to their false worship. The more that they built up altars and pillars, not to the Lord their God, but to Baal. The false God, who they said was the one who provided, rejecting the promise from Genesis 1 that God said he would always make sure his people were taken care of. Rejecting the, the, the Abrahamic covenant that, that it is God who provides the fruit of the womb. It is God who provides all of these things. Instead, they continued uh, to, to build up their false worship and centers of false worship. So, God, in great mercy and grace, you've got to understand this, He's going to let them bear the weight of their guilt. And he's going to tear all of that stuff down so that they do not continue in the illusion, so that the next generation is not granted the illusion of false worship. And you may say, that that don't sound like us. Oh, really? This prosperous nation of ours? For which we have taught our children not that the Lord our God has provided, but the system itself has provided. See, it's interesting, we sound a lot like uh, what was the heart of the Industrial Revolution, which was something called Taylorism. Anybody familiar with Taylorism? Uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor uh, came in and he wrote a book called The Principles of Scientific Method. And so what he did was he studied efficiency and he studied the best ways to do everything so that everything was a system. And you know what he declared when the project was finished? He said, man no longer is what is important. What is important is the system. So you and I became nothing but cogs in a machine. What's interesting about that is the same ideology is at the heart of the missiology of Google. Right? They have bought into Taylorism and have declared it righteous. And part of what they don't want you to do, and this is not a tirade about Google, by the way, but it's just an important uh, point to who we are becoming and how we're being shaped. Uh, But what they want is for you not to have to think about anything. They want to be able to provide whatever it is you need as fast as you can even consider it and think of what they've accomplished. How many of you have looked at a pair of shoes only to find magically in everything you look at options of those kinds of shoes? It's like magic. No, it's algorithm. It's system. You're being reduced, not built up as the Lord your God would have you built up, to be the sons and daughters of the God Most High, heirs of all of the spiritual things. We live in an age in which we we are not granting the Lord our God the awe and the worship that he is due. We have instead taken so much upon ourselves and said, no, we we will take this part from here. Thank you very much. We will fashion and be fashioned into the image of something other than the Lord our God. And we don't even ask questions about it, right? It, things have become so ubiquitous that we, we don't even question whether or not they're good anymore. We don't question whether or not it's good for our children always. And and so we we are not that different and not that far from the false worship and the prosperity that the North Kingdom had. And so we would do well to think these things through. We would do well to return to the Lord our God. And I'm not saying unplug. Don't don't hear me say let's return to the pioneer days as if sin didn't, didn't exist in the pioneer days, right? They killed each other with axes instead of large bombs. I get it. I mean, it was, it was rough then too, right? But, but what I am saying is we should be asking questions of all that we have. How is this shaping me? What is this turning me into? Because it is affecting us. The neuroscience, the neurobiology on how our brains have changed With the the advent of the computer and the way we look at things, is it is inarguable, and it's happened without us even thinking a whole lot about it. A few people kind of fired off shots: Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, and people rendered them just voices crying in the wilderness, not to be listened to. Those guys were just crazy. Not so crazy now. All right, so it's us too. This is the plank, maybe in our own eye. It's not true of all of us, but it's true certainly of our culture. And then it goes on to say that if, when the Lord strikes them and they lose, they're not going to turn to him. They're not going to say, Lord, where are you? They're just going to say, we just lost our king. Who cares? He was a bum anyway. We can run this ourselves. Does this sounded familiar at all? This distrust that they had of authority, ultimately, the one who had led them into this mess and they won't question it all. They just pick it up and keep going with it. Unquestioning, unthinking, uncritical. And so that what they end up doing is they just utter mere words. They make these covenants that don't matter. Their, their stated belief is a huge gap between their stated belief and their actual practiced belief. There's something I want to say to us. If you say you're a Christian, um, we, we've made the mistake of thinking that, that there's like some sort of smorgasbord, right, of Christian kind of virtues. And when I say I'm a Christian, I can go to the smorgasbord and be like, oh, I'll take a, I'll take a little bit of compassion. Thank you very much. And I'll take a little bit of, a little bit of forgiveness. Not much. It's limited, mind you. Uh, and I'll take, a, I'll take just a little bit. I don't want to be known for all of this stuff. Like, I, I'll be a little bit merciful now and again. But, but don't go getting crazy. Don't you press me. Don't you cut me off. Don't you touch my fence. None of that. Right, so we think that it is we get to decide what it means to be a Christian. No, you don't. When you say you're a Christian, there is there is already, as far as the Bible is concerned, a set of things that that means you should look like and should be identifiable in you. You may be, oh Lord, the Bible's like eighteen hundred pages. <laughs> Which ones? Well, remember what we are. We are image bearers. Right. And whose image do we bear from the very beginning? It was God the creator, right? And then Jesus comes, and Jesus is the exact imprimatur, the exact imprint of who God is. That's Hebrews chapter one. And then in John 17 and other places, he makes it very clear, I am the Lord God in the flesh. So everything that he is, you are seeing that. And we are being transformed into Christ's image. And so you may say, okay, well, that's, that's a little closer. That sounds hard. So what should that look like? Well, I've told you before that a passage that you ought to memorize is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It is God's proclamation and confession of who he is. Remember when, when Moses says, let me see your glory. God says, no man can see the fullness of my glory and live. I'll let you see a little of the backside, but then I'm going to give you a confession to carry with you that really is how you will display my glory in this world. Remember what he says, he says, I I am the Lord your God, and I am merciful, and I am gracious, and I am slow to anger, and I am steadfast, and I am faithful, and I am forgiving, and I am also just, but my justness is only gonna go to the third and the fourth generation before I say no more, which is what we're seeing here, right? And so, what should you look like as a Christian? Well, it ought to be that you are and could be accused of being merciful. It ought to be that somebody ought to say, he's he's gracious. It ought to be that we are the fastest people to forgive of anybody on the planet. We've got to beat the Buddhists. We... (laughs) we have to be able to be described as slow to anger and that just took the legs out from how many of us, myself included. And we also ought to be just, but not letting our justness exceed our graciousness and our forgiveness. So if you say you're a Christian, all of those things at some point ought to be being cultivated and developed in you. Will you display them perfectly? Let's get that one out of the way real quick. No, you won't. But it ought to be the thing that you're striving toward. It ought to be the thing that you're asking of anything that you have. Is this helping me become any one of these things? Or is it in some way draining the life from me in these things? Is it... Is it, and some of you have made this decision, and God bless you for doing it, that you realize that you weighing in on Facebook on different issues was not the healthiest way for you to develop and cultivate mercy, grace, forgiveness, and long-suffering, and slowness to anger. Right? But we need to be looking at the whole of our lives and asking, how is this cultivating these things? So that our stated belief, I am a Christian, actually has some practiced meat on its bones. Amen? I read recently, um, I'm in the middle of this book, it's the Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman by Ernest J. Gaines. If you're not familiar with Ernest J. Gaines, he writes a lot about life in the post-Reconstruction South, particularly in Louisiana. Uh, And I've read a number of his books so far. And he's got this brilliant passage, and so it's not going to ruin it. There's not really a necessity for a spoiler alert. Uh, But um, I don't know if you have spoiler alerts with classics, as it were, anyway. But the situation is um, that uh, the the Emancipation Proclamation has been declared. And so on the plantation that these folks are on, the master comes and basically says, you guys are free to go. You could stay and do sharecropping, which, as it turned out, was not much better than slavery. Or you could go, which it turned out wasn't a whole lot better in some respects. And so, <clears throat> this little girl, who turns out to be Jane Pittman, is 11 or 12, and she and a group of slaves leave, okay? And they are found, because there were patrols of secession, so those who were part of the secession army uh, or the Confederate army and the Ku Klux Klan. And so they're found and all of them are murdered with the exception of Jane Pittman and a little boy named Ned. Uh, Ned's mother is found dead with a baby clutched in her arms. They beat him to death with sticks because they didn't want to waste bullets. Okay? And so she's trying her best to get to Ohio to find this Yankee soldier who promised to take care of her, a Mr. Brown. And along the way, she runs into a white woman, which is the passage I want to read to you here. I just want you to hear how startling it sounds coming from her, but I want you to think about what if you were this honest, right? And so they're they're thirsty is kind of part of it, and so she's approached this woman. And I'm going to have to edit a word. I'm going to use slave instead, okay? She says, don't think I love slaves just because I'm giving y'all water. She was saying, I hate y'all, hate y'all with all my heart. I'm doing it because I'm a God-fearing Christian. I hate slaves with all my heart because y'all are the cause of all this trouble, all this ravishing, Yankee and slave soldiers all over the place stealing my hogs and chickens. Y'all the cause of all of it. I hope the good white people around here kill y'all off. I hope they kill y'all before the night over. In fact, I'm gonna tell them where y'all went. I'm gonna tell them to kill y'all now, get away from here. Get away from here before I kill y'all myself. If I weren't a God fearing Christian, I'd kill y'all myself. Now, isn't there a gap between her proclamation of I'm a God fearing Christian and I'd kill y'all myself? And just so you know, the water she gave them was water that was sitting out in the sun and she poured it in their hands. So, charity wasn't the virtue she was displaying. And, and, and as I read that, I really, and I was meditating on the sermon for this week, I thought, what a, what a beautiful picture of the gap between stated belief and beautiful is kind of an interesting word there. What a terrible picture, but at the same time, you get it. Stated belief and practice belief. That she would say, I'd kill you all myself. I wasn't a God-fearing Christian, but I'm going to make sure the clan knows where y'all are. Hunt you down, kill you both. She's talking to an 11 or 12-year-old girl and a 3-year-old boy. Maybe you say, I ain't that bad. Well, that's good. That's good you're not that bad. But is the plank still out your eye? Is is it that you have any place where you are looking at and considering, is what I say I am being actually manifested, uh, incarnated, as it were, in this world? And what of the decisions I made in my life are helping me get there? Because to say that you're a Christian is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's to declare yourself an ambassador of a king who's coming again. And he will either come and he will be your father, who will love you as he said he would love you, or he will be your judge. And just because you say you're something doesn't make you something. Like, we have for too long thought that the name got us, got us out of this, right? Just declaring it, just Saying some sort of sinner's prayer was all that was necessary for salvation. The whole sweep of scripture does not support that idea. One iota, just so you know. We've encultured that. In fact, that's a false worship that we have passed on to our children. In fact, we've been doing it for a few generations. We are the product. And so... Here, what's happening is that their diagnosis is they've a false heart, and their words don't mean anything, and their, their oaths don't mean anything. There's no, there's no tangible manifestation. See, they thought, if I just say the right words, remember, they thought if we just sacrifice a few lambs, God will go back to the back of the universe, and he'll get quiet, and he'll be fine. That's right? all he needs. Remember what he said. I don't desire sacrifices from you. I desire what? Mercy and grace. My qualities writ large upon your life and displayed in this world. We are nothing more than a false temple if we do not display these things. If we do not take seriously, not perfectly displaying, because it's gonna be a give and take, right? Forgiveness is a rough deal sometimes. Processing, working through that. We are not, Unable to be unaffected, right? There's emotional things. There's things that are hard to work through. I get it, but we should be seeking to work through it and inviting community to assess us and see how we're doing. We ought to be merciful, gracious. We ought to be hospitable. We ought to look a lot more like God than Baal and the rest of the world. And so the result, if not, if we don't consider these things, is that all that we have will perish. And we will cry out to the mountains, fall on us, cover us. Now this should be a verse that should strike something in your memory because Jesus says it to a group of women who are following him. This is Luke chapter 23, verses 29 through 31, who are following him and he's, been, he's being crucified. He's saying to them, And he actually quotes Hosea 9 and puts it in a better perspective for us. that shows us it was actually God's grace. He says, it is good that you are barren now. For what is coming, you would not want to have children. And the the people will cry out to the mountains, fall on us, cover us. Instead of having come to the Lord who invited them for centuries to come. And this verse also gets quoted in Revelation chapter 6 when the sixth seal is broken open. If you know anything about the sixth seal, it ain't good. And the result's going to be that people would say, may the mountains fall on us. May our graves become immediate to protect us from the one who has come to judge at last. So God is graciously warning them. Remember, this is not the newspaper. He's not telling of events that have happened. He's telling of what will happen if they don't change. And sadly, it says they are more concerned about the loss of their little golden calf. They tremble at the loss of that little golden calf who, by the way, has never opened its mouth and provided anything, which is kind of what we like. We like our gods to be silent. We like our gods to not have opinions. We like for our gods not tell us when we're doing right or wrong. Like for our gods to sit right there with their mouths closed and do what we tell them when we want to tell them and attribute to them what we would like. And so they tremble at the loss of this little golden calf that's going to be carried off as nothing but tribute. And there's nothing they can do about it. Their king is nothing but a, a twig thrown upon the water, going which way and that, that he cannot even decide. He is it is forces beyond his comprehension and anything that he could do. He is nothing compared to the sovereign moving of the Lord our God. And so, God says, I will discipline them. I'm going to discipline them because I love them. And a good father disciplines his children. We would be wise to understand that. Listen to what Thomas Edward uh, Macomiskey says about this. He says, it is when the calf is carried off that shame will seize them. It is ironic that shame did not seize the people when they consorted with the brazen cult prostitutes or violated the purity of their traditions or lied and cheated for profit. It was only when they saw the end result of their folly that they were ashamed. They had learned too late. Their international policies and their worship of the forces of nature had led them to ultimate shame and degradation. How many of us are like this? You're sorry when you get caught. You're sorry when the the sentence comes down. Suddenly you want to be a reformed human being. And I don't mean that in a religious sense. Suddenly you want to change your life. All of the beckoning of God, all of the promises of God mean nothing to you. But if it'll commute my sentence, I'll pay a little to the king if I need to. If it'll commute my sentence, heck, I'll even go to church once in a while. It's tough. It's an hour and a half here. Right? I might even go go to a, a Bible study and run the risk of hearing something if it'll commute my sentence. Instead of being drawn by the Father who loves us, who has promised so much to us, if it's all the way by the time that the judgment falls as he warns, you're too late. Here now. And as Hosea is gonna to say to us, you gotta seek the Lord while he may be found. The question I have for us though is, and this is, this is a question I want us to begin to consider and not just today. I want it to be a, a, a consistent question. It needs to be a question that I am confronted with, certainly as pastor, but how consistent are your stated beliefs or your words with your practice beliefs or your deeds? How consistent are they? And how often do you assess the gap or do you have any means of assessing the gap? And do you know that if there is a gap, that the Lord our God calls us and gives us every means of grace necessary to change that gap? It's not all upon you. How gracious is he that he gives us so much to work with? But those tools don't work if we don't take them up. And so we need to, and I don't mean this neurotically, by the way. I want to be careful here that we could go around constantly assessing every little deed. But I think there needs to be a place, and the Sabbath is a great, Lord's Day Sabbath is a great location for that. To stop and just review the past week. How have I I lived out what I say I believe? But first you have to decide what is your stated belief. And you first have to recognize that it is not up to you to this smorgasbord said stated belief. It is determined by the image of God, that confession, Exodus 34. There's other passages. I don't want to limit you here, but that one's an easy one. Are you gracious? Are you forgiving? Are you faithful? Are you just? Do you care about just things at all as the Lord your God does? And how in the world can you close that gap? And then, and then us growing in our intimacy with one another to be able to discuss those things. That when you have a gap, you can come to other brothers and sisters who you know are not gonna turn you away. They're gonna practice the same truth stated as practiced. And we'll love you and help you through it because as we sang, we are weak and our sins do rise to meet us. It feels like all the time. They're like ghosts that haunt So how can we help apply these things to one another and love each other well so that what we are displaying in this world is not just verbiage and a false heart, words and deeds that don't matter. Let's turn back to the text and see how it concludes because it's not just this diagnosis he gives them the cure. He says, When I please, I will discipline them, and the nation shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces and their children, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. So he says... I will choose to punish them in my timing. Now, why is that good? Because it is not some sort of commodified equation, right? You sin, God flicks you. You sin, God gives you uh, uh, blindness. You sin, God, you lose a foot, right? So the, the goodness is that God will, in his timing, when it will have the greatest impact upon you for your redemption, He will discipline. This is a a grace of his that it is not simple math. It is not an algorithm. It's not shoes on Amazon. This, this is grace. And so then he calls out and says, now, sow for yourselves righteousness. Now, what does that mean? To sow righteousness means to actually display the character of God in this world. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is God's character made manifest. So again, what could we do? What could we sow? Mercy, grace, forgiveness, steadfastness, faithfulness. You could also do the, 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 uh, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Those things ought to be sown. And what do we reap? Confidence in God's love for us, that steadfast love, that covenant love. Now here's the good news. This side of Hosea 10, That all has been sown on your behalf. Christ, in him dying, going into the grave, was sown in righteousness so that we could be covered in his righteousness. That has been imputed to us, which means you now have no excuse whatsoever not to display the characteristics of God in this world because it is not up to your limited abilities. It's up to the manifestation of Christ's imputed to you. Amen? It is not for us to, in Herculean effort, try to be that which we are not. We've been transformed. Take and eat, take up and receive. So he sowed so that you would not ever have to worry about steadfast love, God's covenant love for you. That is a finished equation. And then it goes on to say, break up your fallow ground. Now this would be synonymous to us with sanctification, some measure, right? There is work to be done on this side of our salvation. And that work is not to make God love us more, but so that we could grow in our knowledge of how vast and amazing and awe-inspiring that love is to us. Many of us as Christians have had hard hearts. I am numbered among you. I cycle, my ground sometimes grows so hard as I look at the world. And I wonder, Lord, what are we doing? Not what are you doing, but what in the world are we doing in your name? It's embarrassing at times. And yet, and yet, he is not mocked. And I am my ground is, is churned up again. It's broken up each time I pray and I go into the word. And even worship here, it is broken up again and again. And it needs to be perpetually broken up because I am quick to harden and quick to give up. So he calls us. There is work that we must do so that we can receive the reign of God's blessing right? So that the the, the thing that he wants to pour out upon us, we could receive and it would bear fruit in our lives. So notice he's saying to them, there is a way for you not to have to bear the yoke of judgment. He even says, I loved you. Even when you were a wild little calf wanting to just thresh all day long and run around that crazy, I didn't put my yoke upon you. How many of you hear the echo of Jesus' words? Come, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light compared to what Baal is going to exact from you. So God, Jesus didn't pick that out of a vacuum. He is essentially quoting from Hosea 10 when he speaks those words because this has been God's heart. Remember, you're not being saved from God. You're being saved to God. There's no Old Testament God, New Testament God. The same God of grace all throughout. The difference is the application of Christ to our lives, which makes possible what was impossible under the old covenant. And so he says to them, I wanna love you, but yet you wanna place yourself. Again, I appreciate Robbie's words about so often we jettison what we think is the law of God and instead take on all these greater laws. And we end up more enslaved and more emburdened and more broken. And this is what God's saying here. He's saying, "The yoke's going to be put on you, North Kingdom, South Kingdom and everybody together, is going to break you. And the war that's coming, the war that's coming, I want you to know, before the dawn even breaks, you will have lost, and you will know you have lost. Because the king will be destroyed. And know that you're turning yourselves over to a group of people who treat women and children in horrible and awful ways. Why would we want to yoke ourselves to ideologies, to philosophies, to psychologies, to religions that only are concerned with destruction? And yet we do it. Again and again and again, we, we think, and that prime example to me, um, and if you're, if you're a socialist communist, God bless you, uh, and if you're currently a socialist communist, you are, you're amazing in your arrogance because you think you're going to make it work, that it's not the system that's the problem, it's been the people, and you've come as the Messiah so that you can make a system work that is proven that only destruction comes from said system, Right? Uh, the bernie sanders phenomena like and you read if you read again and again and again what you will read is intellectuals who are fascinated with marxism and socialism and they keep saying yeah it's been a colossal historical disaster there have been millions of people who have died and i get it it's just been the wrong application really how many times are we going to try how many times are we going to be fascinated by and, and, and drawn to this thing? And we even, we've even tried to make Jesus a socialist. And just so you know, left to my own devices, I would, be, I would be chief among them, arrogantly thinking I can make it work. So know that the spirit of that age is in this age. And the cure blessedly is the exact same. But the beauty is that this cure on this side in this age is accomplished where it wasn't in that one. Amen? And so, what we have is God yet again saying to his people, you cannot do this and I won't let you destroy everyone. And that's love. That is love. That is love of the Father who's saying, I will not let you burn it all down. I will not let you throw it all away. So here's the question. And this is another great question that, uh, if I do say so myself, (laughs) uh, that I think we need to perpetually kind of come back to. is what are you you sowing at this point in your life? If you look at the various spheres of influence that you have, so spheres of influence are family, neighborhood, job, church, and and there may be others as well, volunteering, all that kind of stuff. What are you sowing in those spheres of influence? Because you are, you're sowing something everywhere. And the better question is what do you expect to reap as a result of what you're sowing, right? And so we, for some reason, tend to think that if we sow squash, if we just want it bad enough, that stuff will come up, broccoli. No, won't. Will it, Tom Oakey? Won't do it. He's thought about it. He's prayed over it, and it just don't. It's just squash at the end of the day. And so, so we are sowing something. Now, what do we expect to reap? And how reasonable are we being? Now, this is a question that we need our middle schoolers. Um, our, our elementary school folks, you need to be thinking of this because I cannot tell you, I was a physical therapist for 15 years. Gary Shankman's a PGA. I can tell you how many people come to me and they're, they're high school students and they're like, I'm, I'm gonna be a physical therapist. Oh, are you? Okay, well, what's your GPA? I think it's like a one nine or two five. Uh, you do understand that you don't even get in the door less than a three five. You do understand that, right? Like there's, you can want all you want to. No, wait till they interview me. I'm stellar. Listen to me. You don't get an interview based on a headshot or your Facebook account. You just don't. It's like med school. There's certain things that you must, must have that you can't be a physical therapist no matter how much you want to. So they have sown bad academics, but they think they're gonna reap a six-figure job. Not as a PT, you're not. Not as a doctor, you're not. Well, that ain't fair. Okay. <laughs> I don't what to tell you after that. Uh, but, but you see what I'm saying? So we, we, we really have some, and I, I've seen it too many times, and this is where we need to help the next generation recognize, what are they sowing? Help them to see, for those of you who are teachers, you see this all the time, just how unrealistic we can be. It's not just them either, by the way. It's us too, Right? Think about all the times you say you're gonna get to something and you just don't. You're not sowing anywhere close to reaping whatever it is you're gonna get to, right? Like you, you don't get a lovely coffee table that sits in someone's garage uh, by just pr- hoping for that. You, you gotta put the legs on, right? You got, it's gotta be painted. It's gotta show up, right? There's a lot of stuff. You gotta sow to reap, Right? And so, so that's a small example. My wife's now mad at me because <laughs> I want that coffee table and I'm tired of praying for it. Uh, so, so what are you sowing? Look at the spheres of influences and what do you hope to reap? And what are you reaping for what you've sown? And how might you think differently about that? And how might your stated belief and your practice belief have some impact upon what you sow and what you reap, which is what God is saying to his people here? So what do we learn from Hosea chapter 10? One, it teaches us the inconsistency between our stated beliefs and our practice beliefs, it proves incredibly costly. It just does. So much of the reason that the next generation is totally uninterested in Christianity is, and this has been going on for too long, is because our stated beliefs are so far from our practice beliefs. Our kids see us at at our absolute, they're in the car with us when we are blessing people out uh, and doing all the things. That's that a small one that I've been guilty of, by the way. So I'm not casting stones from the glass home in which I live. But how often is, is the reason the next generation is uninterested is because we've, we've, we've just given them stated belief but not practiced belief. We have not incarnated at all what we should. That's not true of all of us. Some of you are doing amazing work and you're amazing parents. And thank you. But we're all in this. Even those, those who are not currently parents, you, the kids are watching all of us. They're, they're forming their opinion about what a Christian is by how you treat them here. Do you want them to say, man, that Patrick Skeen, that dude was the meanest dude I ever knew in my life. I tried to get coffee one time and he pushed me down. Uh, that didn't really happen, by the way. So. Um, But how are we we passing along stated practice beliefs? So our inconsistency, it proves really costly. Second, that God so graciously calls us to sow righteousness and break up our fallow ground and seek him in repentance. So as not to have to bear the consequence of judgment. He's so gracious. And, And listen, he's not just saying it in Hosea 10. He gave us Jesus he gave us Jesus sown, that's why we read 1 Corinthians 15, sown in his perishable humanity so that he would rise not the man of dust but the man of heaven. So that we would bear not the image of just the man of dust but we would bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen? And so what a gift that we this morning get to um, yet again be reminded of the beauty of all of this in the Lord's table in that we um, get to see again that Christ, who was sown into the grave, who was sown into death so that he would rise victorious, so that he could say to death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And that sin could have no claim upon his people. And so this, this table reminds us of what was sown in righteousness and what we can reap in steadfast love. How the fallow ground has been broken up so that we could receive the rain of God's blessing upon our lives. That is not all the yoke is not on us. It was on Christ. And so there's three folks uh, who don't really benefit from this table. The first is those who don't believe. If you don't believe, don't, don't, don't with a false heart take don't utter mere words or, or oaths that you, you, you're not going to keep. You're, you're not going to keep God at bay because he loves you too much by eating a little bit of bread and some juice. And then if there are those of you who refuse to show a particular characteristic of God. If you harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, that's essentially you saying, as far as I'm concerned, they can burn in hell. My ticket's punched. I hope theirs isn't. You can't take of this table because that, that in and of itself is a microcosm of the fullness of the character of God, what righteousness really is, right? And so you could be in a process. You may be working with someone. You may be working through something. You need this table. So don't hear me say if you're in the process and it's not yet resolved, you can't take. No, you, you must take if you're a believer. But if you have written someone off and you're done, as far as your finiteness is concerned. You can't, you can't eat of this. It won't do you any good. In fact, it'll be for you to eat discipline upon yourself. And then the third person is if, and I don't know that, I don't know any of you being in this category, but if the church that you may be uh, coming from uh, has you currently under discipline, you shouldn't take at this table, that should be resolved first. And I don't know of any of you being in that category. That would have to be your own conscience. And so those folks are not not welcome to partake of this because it would do them harm. But everybody else, everybody else who says, I am in desperate need of a Savior because of my brokenness. And Jesus is that only Savior, and it is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, which is my surrender, not a work on your behalf, my surrender to the finished work of Christ to be applied to me through no fault or no gain of my own. Nothing I have done deserves it. Then this, this is the table for you. To celebrate, here's the beauty. You are to celebrate what has been sown for you and what you can now reap. You are to celebrate what has been broken up for you so that you could receive the gracious gift of God's blessing upon you. The elders would go ahead and come forward. I want to remind us of what Jesus said on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper. As they were gathered around, this was the last meal that he would have with them before his death and resurrection. Um, And he reaches over and he just grabs something common, something that they would be able to understand, something they would have after he was long gone. And that was bread. He reached over and he said, this, this gentleman, all of you, this is my body broken for you. And in saying that his body was broken for them, what he was saying to them was, my body accomplishes what you couldn't. It closes the gap between you and your creator. It takes away the shame and the guilt and the sin that has kept you from your Abba Father. And It satiates or satisfies the totality of God's wrath so that none of us would ever fear coming before the Lord our God ever again. Now you may say, is there no judgment for believers? No, there is judgment of our works. 1 Corinthians 3, that's different. Remember what Paul said. Even in that judgment, you'll be saved from the fire. That fire won't consume you. It's just gonna burn up all the trash you've done, which is good news because you can't have trash in the new heaven's Earth. And so as you receive this bread, I want you to hold it until we can take together as family and just meditate on. Meditate on what has been sown for you and what you now reap because of all that and how you might live reflecting what has been sown and what you now reap. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the broken body of Christ, and we thank you for this common element that signifies all that beauty, all that gift, all that freedom. Help us, Lord to celebrate, help us to take great joy in what has been sown on our behalf and what we are able to now reap, eternal life, eternal restoration with you, our God. Help us to display that joy, that reality in this world. In Christ's name, amen.